This is episode 56 of the March of History. I am your host, Trevor Furness. In our last episode, Caesar scrambled all over Gaul, putting out ember after ember of rebellion. And he even crossed the Rhine for a second time and again took the fight to the Germans, hopefully trying to teach them a lesson once and for all. And Caesar's goal in doing all of this was to put down the various rebellions before they could gain momentum and unite. Now, after crossing back over the Rhine and into Gaul, Caesar has one more tribal rebellion to stamp out. You see, he has saved the most important tribe for last. That's the Eberones, led by Ambiorix. And they're not the most important tribe in Gaul because they're the most powerful or historically have had prestige. No, in this case, the Eberones are the most important simply because they are the ones that started this whole rebellion in a way. They are the ones, at least, that had the most success in this rebellion. They are the ones led by Ambiorix that wiped out Caesar's 14th legion. So in this case, Caesar isn't just putting down a rebellion. This, for Caesar, is an act of retribution, of vengeance. Ambiorix and the Eberones had taken Caesar's precious 14th legion from him. And now, Caesar intends to punish them for this. Now, Caesar may have saved the most juicy bit of revenge for last, the Eberones, but this will also be the most difficult. You see, the Eberones live in and around the Ardennes forest, so it's not going to be easy for Caesar to march through their territory and ravage their people. Caesar starts by sending his cavalry ahead of the infantry, and he gives the cavalry orders not to light any fires as they march forward. And the reason he does this was to prevent them from being spotted by the Eberones. Caesar wants his cavalry to be able to sneak up on the Eberones' territory, sneak up on their people, and not be spotted by campfire smoke or by reflections on the clouds at night. And as you would imagine, as is the usual case in Caesar's armies, this cavalry squadron, moving at lightning pace, manages to get the jump on Ambiorix, and actually finds him in a building in the midst of a forest. Even Caesar says nobody expected them to actually find Ambiorix like this. Despite this, Ambiorix's men are able to hold off the Roman auxiliary cavalry for just enough time for Ambiorix to hop on a horse and then to lose his pursuers in the woods as they chased him. So Ambiorix escapes yet again. Now at this point, after this near miss, Ambiorix sends messengers to his men, telling them that rather than gathering as an army to face the Romans in the field, instead his plan is for it to be every man for themselves. So in response to this message, the Eberones' warriors flee in all directions. Some of them go to hide in the Ardennes forest, others in the marshes of the territory, others flee to tidal islands in the Atlantic, and some of the warriors even leave the Eberones' territory altogether. And you may remember from episode 52 that the Eberones have a second leader 
who is not as significant as Ambiorix. And this man's name is Catavolcus. But Catavolcus is not a young, brash war leader like Ambiorix. He's an older man. He's past his prime. And so Caesar says that Catavolcus is too old to endure war or exile. So after cursing Ambiorix for starting this whole plot, this whole war that they're in, Catavolcus kills himself. It's a little confusing in the commentaries as to how Catavolcus does this. The Gallic War commentaries I have says that he ate from a yew tree, which sounds like some kind of poisoning. But historian Adrian Goldsworthy says that he hung himself from a yew tree. So take your pick. Either he ate from the yew tree or he hung himself from it. Either way, he killed himself in some way involving a yew tree. Caesar then marches his army to the old winter camp of the 14th Legion. And remember, this is the camp that Sabinus and Cotta had left, along with their 14th Legion, before being ambushed and wiped out by Ambiorix. This camp is in the territory of the Eberones, and it's still perfectly intact. And so Caesar chooses to use it as a camp to save his soldiers the work of making a whole new camp. At this camp, Caesar then leaves the newly remade 14th Legion. This is a replacement for the old 14th Legion that was wiped out. And he leaves them along with the baggage train under the command of Quintus Cicero. The rest of his army, Caesar then divides into three flying columns and tells these three flying columns to meet back at the main camp in seven days where Quintus Cicero and his 14th Legion are. So Labienus is given three legions and sent towards the Atlantic and the lands that border the Monopii, that is the marsh-dwelling tribe. And another one of Caesar's legates, Gaius Trebonius, is sent with another three legions to the land that border the Aduatuki. Finally, Caesar takes three legions himself toward the river Scheldt and the furthest reaches of the Ardennes, where it is rumored that Ambiorix is hiding. And all three of these columns would have had orders to devastate all in their path. Now, as Caesar's columns march, he soon realizes that he has a problem on his hands. There is very little risk to his army as a whole since the Eberones are so spread out and isolated. But individual Roman soldiers would often wander far from the army in the search of plunder. Meanwhile, the Eberones, they know these forests, And so they're able to ambush and wipe out small contingents of Roman men when they go out wandering for this plunder. And because the Eberones are so spread out, there really isn't one center of power for Caesar to strike at. So Caesar really wants to root the Eberones out. He has to divide his men into smaller contingents, which, as we said, is problematic because they then get ambushed. In Caesar's own words, quote, If Caesar wanted an end to the business and the execution of a race of criminals, he must send out more groups of men and disperse the soldiers more widely. End quote. This quote also gives us a glimpse into just how angry at the Eberones Caesar is for killing his legion. Caesar calls them a race of criminals, and he seems to be talking about their genocide. 
Now, it bears keeping in mind that the Gallic commentaries were written for an audience, the Roman audience, and so Caesar may have felt that this is what Rome wanted to hear, that the aristocracy and common people of Rome both wanted to hear that such a dastardly deed as wiping out a Roman legion is avenged on the people that were the perpetrators. Caesar also says in that quote that to root the Eberones out of their valleys and forests and marshes, he would have to divide his army into smaller units. But again, as we keep saying, this is a bad idea. Since if he does this, they're liable to be ambushed in unfamiliar forests and marshes and everywhere else that Caesar does not want to send his men to. So in the end, after considering all of these risks, Caesar decides that his men are just too valuable to risk their lives like this. He actually says that his army hungered for vengeance, wanted to avenge the 14th Legion, but Caesar would rather miss opportunities for vengeance if it means that he will have to risk his men. In other words, he's being very cautious. Even if there's an opportunity to gain some vengeance and kill some Eberones, if it means losing some of his own men, Caesar will not allow it to happen. So if this is the case, what's to be done? How can Caesar solve this seemingly intractable problem? Well, in the end, Caesar has a stroke of genius. He decides that if his men are too valuable to risk sending into these forests and marshes, will then send someone else instead. So Caesar sends out a decree to all of the neighboring Gallic tribes, telling them that the property of the Eberones is free for the taking. Now there is nothing the Gallic tribes like better than raiding each other and taking booty and slaves from each other. And typically Caesar and Rome try to discourage this behavior as much as possible. They see this sort of raiding as instability, and Rome is always about trying to create stability, even at the point of a sword. But here, Caesar is positively encouraging the neighboring Gauls to all gang up on their neighbor, the Eberones. No Gallic warrior worth his salt is going to miss out on this opportunity, and the neighboring Gauls are much more used to this sort of terrain than the Roman legionaries would be and therefore much more effective at rooting out the Eberones. And in case it hasn't been made clear to you just how angry Caesar is at the Eberones, Caesar adds in the commentaries, quote, At the same time, once this host had surrounded them, the race and name of the Eberones would be wiped out as punishment for their crime. End quote. Again, Caesar talking about wiping the Eberones out. That sounds a lot like genocide. And saying that he's doing it because they committed this crime. What is the crime? Killing Caesar's legion. They wiped out his legion, and now Caesar intends to wipe them out. Now, as all of this is happening, as Caesar and the other two columns are out ravaging the territory of the Eberones... And as Caesar's thinking through his problem and ends up inviting the Gauls, the neighboring Gauls, in, an incident takes place back at the camp of the 14th Legion, which is being overseen by Quintus Cicero. You see, Caesar had given this legion and Quintus strict orders to stay within the confines of the camp. 
The 14th Legion is a brand new rookie legion, and so Caesar doesn't trust them yet, and he wants to protect them. After all, look what happened to the last 14th Legion when they had left that exact same camp a year before. Caesar wants no repeats of that happening in the exact same location with the exact same numbered legion. And so far, in waiting for Caesar to return, because Caesar said he would return in seven days, Quintus has obeyed this order to remain in the confines of the camp. But eventually, the seventh day arrives, and still Quintus sees no sign of Caesar or the others. So, Quintus decides to send out five cohorts to gather food from the nearest fields, which are just over a nearby hill. So he sees the food, it's not so far away, troops are getting hungry, they're tired of waiting for Caesar, why not send out a foraging party? Now, also at the camp with Quintus are 300 veteran soldiers who had stayed behind due to sickness. So they had been sick, so they hadn't gone with Caesar's main army. Instead, they had stayed with the rookies to recuperate. And these 300 veterans by now have gotten healthy again. And so they are sent out to collect food in a separate detachment. So just to recap that for you very quickly, we have the five rookie cohorts, or half a legion, and a separate detachment of 300 veterans all sent out to go get food for Quintus Cicero and his camp. And with these two groups go a bunch of orderlies and pack mules to actually collect the food. Now, remember back to Caesar's invitation to the neighboring Gauls to come into the Eberron's territory and to plunder it? Somehow, this invitation found its way over the Rhine and into Germania. And so 2,000 Germanic cavalrymen then cross the Rhine on boats and head for the Eberron's territory to do some raiding. They heard about the Eberron's possessions being free now and they want a part of it. So much for Caesar's most recent lesson to them. <laughs> well, the Germans get to the Eberron's territory and they just start going to work capturing loot. I mean, these guys are born for this stuff. Caesar says in the commentaries, quote, Neither marsh nor forest stood in the way of these Germans, men born to war and deprivation. End quote. Like I said, these guys are born for this. Now, as they're going about capturing loot, which includes human beings, eventually one of the prisoners that they capture asks these Germans why they're wasting their time on such small loot. Germans, you can imagine they cock their head, what? What are you talking about? And this prisoner tells them that only three hours away, the entire Roman baggage train is there with only a small garrison. Now, obviously, this is very clever on the prisoner's part to turn the focus of the Germans from his own people to the Romans. And the Germans are now salivating over the prospect of gaining this loot. So the Germans are then led to the Roman camp by this prisoner, and they arrive at Quintus's camp just when Quintus has sent out half of his men to go forage. And the Germans, without missing a beat, head straight for the camp and almost get in through the main gate. The guards on duty just barely manage to hold the Germans off and push them out of the gate. 
The Germans then run around the camp looking for other ways in to find another entrance. And again, the Romans just managed to hold them off and push them out of the gates. But the result of all this is that panic sweeps through the camp. Remember, this is a rookie legion. They are the replacement for the 14th legion, which had been wiped out. They're even called the 14th legion. And apparently, spending the past week in the camp where their predecessors, which had the same name, the original 14th legion, had committed mass suicide had not done a lot of good things for this rookie's mental health. Even Caesar says this in his own way. Of course, in ancient times, he was not talking about mental health, but in his own ways, he basically echoes this sentiment. And so, the rookie legion panics. And like with most panics, it's chaotic. It's not even clear to everyone what the issue is. Some soldiers begin asking what the whole uproar is about. They haven't seen the Germans come, try to come into the camp. They don't know what's happening. And in response to this, one man tells them that the camp's already been taken, which is probably the least helpful response they could have been given. Another man tells them that Caesar and the rest of his army have been wiped out and that these barbarians trying to invade their camp now are attacking following up this victory against Caesar. Meanwhile, as all these rumors are flying about, untrue as they are, no one is organizing the defenses. To the rescue of this hapless legion, though, comes one Publius Sextius Bacillus. We'll just call him Bacillus for short. Bacillus is a senior centurion, and Caesar has mentioned him fighting bravely in the past in the Gallic Wars and being wounded many times. So Bacillus is sort of a recurring person in the Gallic Wars. He is a brave centurion, and he's a man that Caesar can count on. Now, you may wonder, what is Bacillus doing with all these rookie legionaries then? See, Bacillus had been left behind because he was sick, and so he's left behind from the main army to rest up. I guess, unlike the 300 veterans sent out to collect food, he had not fully healed yet. And for what it's worth... Caesar also mentions that Bacillus had gone five days without food at this point. We don't know exactly why. Maybe it's because they didn't have food in the camp, although they had the main baggage train. But for whatever reason, Bacillus hasn't eaten in five days, and he's still recovering from sickness. Anyway, Bacillus hears all of the commotion in the camp, and he comes out of his tent to see what's happening. And there, Bacillus sees the Germans threatening to come through the main camp gate, and so he sees a bunch of soldiers just standing around watching this. But Bacillus is a man of action. So he grabs a weapon from one of these men that's just standing around, and he goes to the gate and stands his ground there. Now some of the centurions on guard duty see this, and they, they take up positions with him, they follow his lead. Meanwhile, the rest of the rookie legionaries seem to be absolutely useless. Now this group of centurions manages to hold off the German attack until Bacillus gets badly wounded and actually loses consciousness. And as you would imagine, I'm sure him being sick and not eating for five days doesn't help him to retain his consciousness. The other legionaries that are with him just manage to save Bacillus by dragging his unconscious body out of the fray. But Bacillus taking a stand like this and encouraging the other centurions to do the same brought 
enough time for the rest of the men to find their courage and finally man the defenses. Now, as all this is happening, the foraging party is on its way back, and they hear a commotion in front of them. They send out scouts to see what's the matter, and the scouts tell them that, hey, we're cut off from the camp. There's Germans, they're attacking the camp, and they're between us and the camp. And of course, being rookie legionaries, they go into a panic. And this is where Caesar writes one of his more famous quotes, and it's one of my favorite quotes from Caesar. And you'll see it written in many different ways, but the translation I have translates it as, quote, No one is so brave that unfamiliar circumstances will not cause him agitation. End quote. Now, that may be more accurate to Latin, the original Latin it was written in, but a version that flows a little bit better in English is, quote, No one is so brave that he is not disturbed by something unexpected. End quote. Here we have another great lesson in human psychology from Caesar. The Germans then see the returning foraging party, and so they abandon their attack on the Roman camp and move to meet this new foraging party. Now the Roman orderlies then move ahead of the army and try to take the hill between the army and the camp. Now why the orderlies are doing this and not the legionaries, who knows, they're rookies, everything's backwards. But the Germans aren't having this and they end up chasing off the orderlies, and these orderlies, who are now truly terrified, run in a panic through the rookie ranks, which absolutely spooks the rookies. And at this point, a debate springs up among the legionaries. One group wants to form up into multiple wedges and to charge through the Germans to get to the camp. Their idea being the Germans can't stop them all. One or two groups may get stopped and have to fight the Germans, but the rest can make it through. But another group says they want to make a stand on the hill to fight the Germans. Now, the 300 veterans who are with the rookies say that the hill is a bad idea. They don't want to take a death stand with a, with a half a legion of rookies next to them. They don't trust these guys. And they say it's far better to make a charge for the camp and get into the safety of the camp. And so the veterans do this. And some of the rookie legionaries even follow And all of the orderlies, who seem to have good heads on their shoulders, follow the veterans too, and the cavalry also follows them. And it works. Every single one of the men that makes this charge makes it past the Germans and into the camp unharmed. But not all of the rookies went with them. And some of the rookies stay back and try to hold their ground on the hill. But Caesar says that these rookies were in total ignorance of military tactics. And so because of this, they are unable to hold their ground like their plan requires. Essentially, their plan requires a certain level of experience and ability in warfare, which they lack. And at some point, these rookies come to this realization, and they realize that they can't hold this hill. So they then try to imitate the veterans and do a charge on the camp, but they lack the skill to do this too. And they get caught up in difficult ground. Apparently some sort of terrain that made it difficult for them to move in formation together. And this is not surprising. Imagine a sports team made up of players that not only have never played together, but have never played the sport at all until recently. 
That's what we're dealing with here. These rookies don't know how to move and work together as a cohesive unit yet. Now, I'm calling these guys rookies again and again, but there are some veteran soldiers among them. And these are the centurions that are leading them. Now, Caesar says of these centurions that they were men transferred from the lower ranks of other legions to the higher ranks of this new legion due to their bravery. And these men now fight like lions and force the Germans back. But this comes at a cost. In forcing the Germans back, these centurions are killed. These are the only soldiers they have with them that actually have experience. However, this sacrifice does buy enough time for some of the rookies to make their escape to the Roman camp. But others aren't so lucky. The Germans surround these rookies and kill them where they stand. Now, this is clearly a tragedy from the Roman perspective. But all of this does give the legionaries in the camp enough time to finally collect their wits and start manning the camp defenses. And after defeating the remaining rookies, the Germans turn to the camp and see its defenses well manned. So the Germans decide that taking the camp just isn't worth it anymore, and so they head back to Germania with the loot that they have captured and give up on the siege of Quintus's camp. Now you would think that the atmosphere of panic in the Roman camp would subside, that the German barbarians have gone, and now everyone can relax. But it doesn't. You see, later that same night, Caesar's cavalry arrive with a Roman at their head, and they tell the camp that Caesar's at hand and to open the gate. But the traumatized rookie 14th legion refuses to open the door. Caesar says of this in the commentaries, quote, Panic indeed had seized control of their minds so completely that they almost took leave of their senses and started declaring that the cavalry had retreated from battle after all Caesar's forces had been wiped out and that if his army had been unharmed, the Germans would not have tried to besiege the camp. End quote. So the 14th Legion is convinced that Caesar has been defeated, that his forces have been wiped out, and that this cavalry force showing up and asking them to open the gate is actually just retreating from this battle, retreating from where Caesar had been defeated. And it's not until Caesar arrives in person that they are convinced to actually open the gate. Now, this was all clearly a screw-up on the part of Quintus Cicero. After all, Caesar gave him direct orders not to let the rookie legion out of the camp. Caesar had seen what had happened last time to a rookie legion with the exact same name, the 14th legion, in the exact same camp, and did not want to repeat history And Cicero did not obey orders, he sent his troops out anyway, and that's what caused this whole fiasco. But since Quintus' brother, Marcus Tullius Cicero, is a political ally in Rome, Quintus gets off with only a light slap on the wrists in the commentaries. We've seen Caesar fully ready to blame people for disasters before, like Sabinus, and there's been others in the past where he just throws them under the bus in the commentaries and just puts the blame completely on them, whether it's fair or not. But if you come from an important family, 
or if you are an important political ally, Caesar will be much gentler with you in the commentaries. Now, for the rest of the year, Caesar continues to harass the Everones and to hunt for Ambiorics. And he does so with the help of a great host of Gallic allies that is now gathered from all the neighboring tribes to root through the Eberron's territory to find loot and to hopefully find Ambiorics. The Gallic host burns every village and building they come across. The cattle are all rounded up. The food in the region is consumed. And what isn't consumed is flattened in the fields by storm, Caesar says. And the result of all of this, Caesar says, is, quote, The result was that any people at present in hiding seemed likely to die for lack of provisions when the army withdrew. End quote. And historian Adrian Goldsworthy even says that there is a huge drop in the quantities of gold and precious metals found in what was the Eberron's territory after Caesar's time in Gaul. He says that overall the archaeological record shows a marked decline in the quality and the quantity of material culture in this area. All of this, Goldsworthy says, suggests the region didn't recover for at least a generation from the devastation that Caesar brought upon them. But despite all of this, Ambiorx continues to run and hide. Caesar then divides up the Gallic cavalry into small groups and sends them hunting through the woods for Ambiorx. All of these Gallic groups expect great rewards from Caesar if they can only capture Ambiorx. And so Caesar says that they went to almost superhuman lengths to try to catch Ambiorx. And many times, it seems they're just about to catch Ambiorx, but every time, Ambiorx manages to slip away. And by this time, Ambiorx has even shrunk his bodyguard down to his four most trusted men, so that he can move quicker and not have to worry about anybody ratting out his position. Eventually, without finding Ambiorx, Caesar moves his army out of the Eberron's territory and heads for the territory of the Remi, one of his two allies that remain in Gaul. There, Caesar holds a Gallic assembly and starts an inquiry into the conspiracy of the Sinones and the Carnutes. Remember, the Carnutes are the ones that had, by popular acclaim, attempted to put the king of their tribe to death, and Caesar had made this man king, so it was a problem to Caesar. So he wanted to get to the bottom of this and figure out what started this conspiracy. And this inquiry into the conspiracy finds that a man named Akko of the Sinones was the ringleader of all this. And so Caesar sentences Akko to death and says that he was punished in accord with ancestral custom. Now this is pretty vague. You know, what does this mean? This probably means that Akko was brutally flogged to death and then beheaded for good measure. Now, this causes quite a stir in Gaul. You see, Akko was a prominent aristocrat. He was a powerful Gallic chieftain. And yet Caesar, despite all of this, had treated him as no better than a rebellious slave to be tortured and then executed at his whim. This causes enormous resentment in Gaul. 
even more so than the killing of Dumnorix had. But we will talk about that in a future episode. Here is where we end our episode today at the end of 53 BC with Caesar sending his legions into winter quarters and finally heading back to his provinces where, no doubt, the work has piled up in his absence. In our next episode, we will be leaving Caesar behind and Crassus will lead his army against the Parthians. The results of this will have lasting ramifications for the entire Roman world. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, we do have a PayPal. You can find the link in the summary of any episode, and you can leave a dollar tip. After all, if you live in the United States, we tip waiters, cab drivers, bellhops, even the ice cream shop workers. Why not tip your hardworking podcast host, too? So again, you can find the link to our PayPal in the description of any podcast episode, and a dollar a show is all it takes to help the March of History keep on going. And as always, I'd like to thank our patrons on Patreon. You guys are the rocks this podcast is built on, and you get the bills around here paid. So thank you so much, and if you would like to be a patron on Patreon yourself, we have the link to our Patreon in the description of every episode, along with the PayPal link. So thank you so much, all of you, for listening, and I will talk to you on the next episode of The March of History.